Friends, it is shocking to think that we are finally in the final chapter of the book of Acts, right? If you guys were here for the whole series, you might remember that we actually started a series way back while we were still recording our sermons before we could legally meet together when getting COVID sounded like a death sentence instead of like, as it is now. When getting swabbed was still expensive and scary. Donald Trump was still president. People were still talking about Bitcoin and filling up your gas tank didn't feel like getting robbed, right? A lot has changed, hasn't it? Feels like a completely different world just 18 months ago. But despite everything that's been changing around us, one thing that God has really affirmed to us as a church through all this is that it's true what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We as a church specifically experience this truth. Right? Despite all the challenges these turbulent and unpredictable times have brought, our church has in fact grown. And the pandemic has in fact given us more opportunities to preach the gospel and partner with incredible Christians outside of our own particular church, right? I was just in KL last week for the City to City Network Leaders Meeting in Asia Pacific, and it's incredible to hear about how the gospel continues to move forward in places like China, Sri Lanka, Ukraine, when times are so tough through whatever challenge it comes up against. So all this to say, right, that studying the book of Acts have been really encouraging and affirming for me. Because isn't this the story of God's servants in the book of Acts? Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, calls people to follow him and then sends them out to proclaim this gospel message to the ends of this earth where they do meet serious challenges, yet by God's grace, over and over again, they overcame, the gospel prevails, and whatever evil came upon them, God used for good. And an awesome example for that is the Apostle Paul, whose life and ministry has been the focus of the last 14 chapters of the book of Acts. Right? We studied him endure imprisonments, false accusations, beatings, a shipwreck. But over and over again, the Lord has shown Paul that he had always been with him. In fact, God ordered every single thing that has happened to him thus far so that he may continue to preach the gospel. So now, as we begin to study literally the final chapter of the story of Paul that we have in our Bibles, we come to a story that's kind of same, same, but different, right? It definitely rehashes some of the themes that we've seen before throughout the book of Acts, right? God's miraculous deliverance, God's servants doing miracles, and, you know, fellowship of believers, but there are some details here in the text that provides us some nuances about how God shows his faithfulness to his children, even in the midst of such foreign and unpredictable circumstances. So let's read today's text, taken from Acts chapter 28, verse 1 to 15. Thus says the Lord. After we were brought to safety through... We then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all. 
because it began to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up and, or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and no misfortune came to him, they changed their mind and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship uh, that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind uh, sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Batuoli. There we found the brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Brothers and sisters, what is most interesting to me about this text is that it's somewhat of an unusual one in the book of Acts. God wasn't even mentioned until the very end. And there wasn't any explicit mention of evangelism or preaching or accounts of any conversion, right? Stuff that would normally show up in the book of Acts. But despite the seeming lack of missionary activity and results, this narrative actually teaches us something pretty important about how God partners with us in the gospel mission. Specifically, how through the seemingly mundane and everyday things that we go through as Christians. So I think this text teaches us three things in particular about our labor with and for God, right? Our three points. One, God provides His servants for his servants by means of common grace. Two, God's servants provide a testimony to common people of his special grace. And three, God rewards his servants by providing providing for us a special family that has grace in common. Okay, so uh, you'll see the points on the slide behind me. Don't worry about getting it all down right now. But We're here in this final stretch in the book of Acts. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes to this text that we may appreciate the mercies that God has indeed given us every day to stand firm. Okay, so let's get into it. Point one, God provides for his servants by means of common grace. So after surviving another near-death experience in the form of a shipwreck, which we studied about last week, Paul and friends washed ashore in the island of Malta, and we read in verse 1 to 11 uh, Luke's account of their experiences there. And what Luke clearly really wants to highlight in these verses 
is how surprisingly nice the people there were. Luke tells us that the people there showed unusual kindness. The word kindness there is uh, in Greek, philanthropia, right? Where we get the English word philanthropy from. And their actions sure showed it, right? In the same verse, we are told that they had a nice bonfire on the beach together so that they wouldn't get cold. And later in verse 7, we're told that Publius, the chief himself, entertained them for three days. And even more, in verses 10 to 11, Luke tells us that they honored Paul and his companions greatly for three whole months until it was safe for them to set sail again. And when they were ready to go, the natives even hooked them up with everything they need for their journey. Right? And this was unsurprising. They were just straight up friendly people. And it was really surprising because, you know, most of our English translations would translate the word Luke used there for native uh, in a politically correct way, right? Calling them natives. But the actual word Luke used there is barbaroi or barbarians. Now, this is to emphasize how shocking it is because barbarian is actually a derogatory term for non-Greek speakers because for people who spoke Greek, their language sounded something silly like bar, 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 you know. So it was pretty, a pretty offensive term. So to the Greek-speaking world, they thought that these people were unsophisticated, uncultured, uneducated, backwards people, but actually they were the only ones in the book of Acts outside of Christians who were genuinely kind. Right? The Jews kept on persecuting Christians, and most of the time, a non-Christian Roman did anything good. It was out of self-preservation or self-interest. But these guys were just genuinely, or even perhaps culturally, kind people. And what makes it more surprising is that not a word was said in this text about their conversion. Nobody, at least as far as we know, ended up believing in the gospel or repenting or anything. We weren't even told if anybody preached the gospel to them, right? Though Paul probably did. And they're majority Christian now, so someone at some point eventually did. But it seems like what Luke is trying to clue us into here is that one of the ways God takes care of those whom he called is through the kindness and goodwill of other humans. No matter what cultural background or religious tradition they come from, right? We are all capable of being nice, right? This might surprise some of you, especially the young reformed and restless, right? But you don't even need, the Bible teaches, to even believe in Jesus to exhibit good moral behavior. Now, before you burn me as a heretic, right? Let me just point out, that reform people have actually accounted for this reality pretty soundly through the doctrine of common grace. And what common grace consolidates for us is the Bible's teaching that God, in His grace, among other things, uh, is able to love and bless this thoroughly fallen and undeserving sin-cursed world and work in spite of the human tendency towards sin for the flourishing of the human race, right? So while we do wholeheartedly affirm that the Bible teaches us that the world is ultimately broken and enslaved to sin, you know, no one is righteous, not even one. Our, goods, uh, our good deeds are as 
filthy rags before God and all your favorite total depravity verses. But that doesn't mean that all anyone ever does is evil all the time, right? Civilization couldn't exist and function otherwise, and we would have destroyed ourselves long ago. Rather, God chooses by His grace, in His mercy, to preserve His world by restraining how bad and destructive we could potentially be. And in His grace, He enables us to display some of the capacity, some of the capability latent within all humans as images of God to take care of each other and to be good stewards of God's creation. Now, let me be absolutely clear, right? The good that God grants every human the ability to do by common grace, is not able to save. The evil that we've committed is not outwardly, but certainly in our hearts, far outweigh the number of the good that we've done. And in any case, the good that we do is not able to cover and atone for the sins, the evil that we have done, right? We can't ever break even by making up for the evil things that we've done by being good or philanthropic, right? That's simply not how justice works. We are already guilty and responsible for our sin. Like, if we stole money from the government, for example, we have to answer to the law. And we can't say to the law that we're not guilty because we use that stolen money for a good cause. Are you guys with me? So, why it's crucial for Christians to remember that God does give this non-saving common grace to all people is that without it, we will fall into one of two extremes that will demotivate us to fulfill the Great Commission, to actually answer God's calling, to engage people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and testify to them, to the gospel, that they may be followers of Jesus too. Because unless we take seriously common grace, we would either fall into demonizing people where we think everyone outside of us is hopeless and only those who agree with us are actually doing the right thing. So we would retreat into tribalism and only surround ourselves in this echo chamber with like-minded people or even become monastic like some groups who just resort to renouncing everything worldly and then withdrawing from everything instead of engaging the world. So there's not much optimism for the world. In fact, Uh, we become scared of them, seeing them more as a threat that can harm or corrupt us instead of people who need grace too. Or the other extreme is that we can end up deifying humanity, believing that people aren't that bad and are capable of generally being good on their own. So the gospel is only kind of supplementary, right? It's like an additional thing. At best, Jesus then is relegated to just being one of many good moral examples or just some kind of an insurance policy that guarantees our spot in heaven. So there's not much urgency or passion there to share the gospel. Because the church, Christianity, doesn't necessarily need it to be present in any community. Won't hurt, but people basically can figure it out on their own without us. However, If God's grace, if God's common grace is indeed operational in all humans, though the world has fallen, it's not hopeless. And we can be deeply grateful that in all places and at all times, 
all humans are nonetheless images of God, and we can experience God's kindness through them too. Images who God so loves that he was willing to suffer and die so that we all may have the genuine opportunity not to perish, but to be reconciled with our Creator and lay hold to that which is truly life. Friends, isn't this what the gospel offers us? Not simply another way to modify our behavior and just become nice people. See, friends, common grace, understanding common grace, is not only helpful to us because it'll stop us from just being fearful and suspicious of the world all the time, but it gives us to believe that we have every reason that our presence will be an actual vehicle of God's blessing to the world. Because of common grace, it's possible for us to enjoy this state of peace where there is possibility for Christians and non-Christians to coexist with one another in a mutually beneficial way. And through this coexistence, Christians will be given by God the opportunity to engage this broken world with the gospel of grace. And the Christian's role there is to actually show that Jesus has better news for the world, which is point two. God's servants provides a testimony to common people of his special grace. Though the emphasis of Luke's writing in verses 1 to 11 is to clearly highlight how nice the Maltese natives are, the flip side of what Luke is trying to say and show us is that these kind people still held beliefs that are fundamentally at odds with the gospel. Right? So they still need to be shown what the kingdom of God is really like. And there are two incidents in our text in these verses that really brings this to the surface. The first thing is what happened in the very first night. Right? Remember, like the locals very kindly made for them a nice bonfire. And good old Paul decided to help out by picking up some wood for the fire. But then in verse 3 and 5, poor old Paul got bit by a snake. A viper, it says, implying that the snake was venomous. Now, if you watch Natural Geographic or something, it's well known by animal experts that venomous snakes don't usually hang on when they bite, as Luke tells us uh, the snake did to Paul's hand. So some commentators think that the snake isn't actually venomous. They only thought that because Luke or the natives there weren't snake experts and just assumed that all snakes were. So basically they questioned that it was a miracle. But whether or not it's a miracle is not actually the point. Because what Luke really wants to talk about was the way the Maltese interpreted this, right? The logic behind it. How they were at first convinced that Paul was going to drop dead. So in verse 4, they assumed that he was a murderer, which was kind of a fair assumption. Remember, the ship that Paul was on was filled with prisoners after all. Therefore, this must have been some divine act of direct retribution, like the, the gods didn't get the job done at sea, so they tried to finish him off with the snake. Comically, however, after seeing that nothing happened to him, they changed their mind and did a complete 180, going from condemning him as a murderer to then venerating him as one of the gods. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts or have been studying it with us, 
you would know that this is not the first time that this happened, right? If you recall in the chapter 14, the Greeks of Lystra basically did the same thing. They thought that Paul and Barnabas was Zeus and Hermes. And if you go back to the story there, you would see that Paul certainly didn't stay silent when this happened, but corrected them and used their mistake as an opportunity for evangelism. However, interestingly, in this almost identical scenario, Luke didn't seem to think that it was necessary to tell us that Paul did this. Doesn't mean that Paul didn't preach to the Maltese, though, right? It would be quite out of character if Paul didn't do this. So in my opinion, he in all likelihood did. But I think Luke was actually silent on this intentionally. In order to focus on how the sophisticated Greeks were actually really no different from the supposedly barbaric natives of Malta. So what this seems to teach us is this, right? That no matter what culture we are from, no matter how advanced we think our civilization and education is, there are surely points of conflict, an antithesis between how the unbelieving world understands how things work and the Christian worldview. And when these points of disagreements show up, it is actually an opportunity for the Christians to communicate to the world that Jesus actually has better news than that. The Maltese thought that if an unfortunate event happened to someone, right, like a venomous snake bite, it means that he must be a bad person, right? He must, be, he must have done something horrible. But if he miraculously survives a life-threatening calamity, it must mean that he's so good, above other humans, divine, in fact. However, this sharply disagrees with the Christian worldview, doesn't it? And therefore, this opened up an opportunity for Paul to tell them the better news that actually these unfortunate events do not reflect the value of a person, whether or not they're good or bad. Rather, all things are ordered by a sovereign God who works behind all things for the good of those who love Him. You see, doesn't that sound better than if something bad happens to you, that means you're a bad person? And these kinds of opportunities present themselves all the time to us today too. For me, for example, it presents itself often when people are bewildered that I chose to forsake a life and career that maximizes my monetary earning potential for a career in ministry, right? And when this happens, I can start communicating the gospel in so many ways, like how God called me in my life or how my security is not found in finances and how God will provide and so on, right? And I need to be ready in these instances to give a reasonable account for the hope that we all hold. Friends, the more we grow, and our understanding of the biblical worldview and try to consistently live it out, the more will we encounter values of the world that are at odds with the gospel. And when this happens, we are given the choice of either staying silent or giving them a chance to at least consider a better way, the way of Jesus. And I understand, all right, a great deal of wisdom needs to be exercised in this. We're not going to get through to everyone, and we're not called to just debate all the time, right? That would be exhausting. Because even though we are supposed to be prepared to give an answer, nobody has ever been argued into the kingdom of God either. Okay, this, but this need not discourage us, 
Because even though our reasoning might not get through to them, that is not the only option. Because Christians are also testify, uh, called to testify to God's kingdom through our service to them, right? Which is the second thing which we see, the healing account in verse 7 to 9. So we can notice that Luke pretty abruptly changes the scene here from Paul being bit by a snake uh, and then suddenly being in the chief's, Publius's property, whose father happened to be sick with fever and dysentery. Now, I'm not going to gross you out about what the details about what dysentery is. You can Google that on your own. But what I do want to point out is that although we can treat that at home now, back then, uh, before modern medical science, this is a life-threatening situation if this goes on. So Paul saved his life, right? He laid hands on him and prayed for him. And what do you know? Paulus' dad was healed. And after this, Luke told us that the disease of the entire island came to him to be prayed for and were also healed. Now again, right, to the young, reform and restless, relax, right? Let there be no misunderstanding. Although we can ask God to heal someone miraculously, and God is most certainly capable of doing that, the leaders of this church does not believe that anyone is given the ability to miraculously heal on demand like Paul was anymore, right? And that's a whole rabbit trail that we don't have time to go on in this sermon, so get in touch with us if you're interested to talk about it. We love discussing these things. However, what I do want to recall and emphasize is the reason for why miraculous things like this happen in the New Testament. If you recall a sermon, uh, the sermon that we preached over a year ago now, and we discussed chapter 5, we talked about how these healings are essentially trying to give us a foretaste of the kingdom of God that is both already and not yet. Right? And here's what I mean. The Bible teaches us that the kingdom of God will only be fulfilled when Jesus returns a second time in glory. Right? It is only then that death will be no more, every tear will be wiped away, and we are completely and finally freed from the presence of sin. But that doesn't mean that this glorious reality is entirely future. Because Jesus is already risen from the dead and is reigning in heaven, and because the Holy Spirit has already been poured out and is presently with us even now. So the Bible teaches that even now, in the midst of this sinful and broken world, it's really possible to experience and testify to this future reality, though in part and only imperfectly. Because, you see, the Bible teaches that Christians have fundamentally been changed and are now new creations, meaning that the Holy Spirit is already now empowering each one of us to live by an ethic and to create communities that are not only free from sin's power, but also reversing the destructive effects of it, like it would be in the new creation, right? A reversal of this world of sin. Therefore, if we are really following Jesus faithfully, the world will see and even get a taste a bit of what this new creation is going to be like. Because, friends, the Christian life is always intended to be lived boldly and publicly and not just privately and insularly. And in fact, throughout history, Christians have all, always participated and, uh, in activities and established organizations that contributes to human flourishing. 
Like, you know, what kind of institutions always seem to improve and increase when a lot of faithful Christians are around? Schools and hospitals. Institutions that are, by design, supposed to help fallen images of God to flourish and to reverse the curse of death, right? The curse of sin that looms over all humanity as much as humanly possible, of course. And you know, who always seems to be helpfully present and active in places where there is mass crisis and suffering? The Christians. To the point where even the secular, unbelieving world has already come to expect this of us Christians. Because these sorts of things are indeed properly Christian things to do as it reflects the reality that we believe and we go by a new king that reigns over all creation. A king whose agenda is to redeem and restore the dignity and perfection of the image of God and man that has been enslaved and marred by sin. So I guess, summarize, what Luke is encouraging us to do here is not be naive, right? Though by God's common grace, all humans are at some level capable of kindness as images of God, no matter how kind we could be, there is still the brokenness of sin present in all of us. And Jesus can heal that brokenness by God's special grace that seeks to save humanity and renew all of creation. And all followers of Jesus who are in the process of being healed could and should meaningfully testify to this healing power through our words, our reasoning, and our deeds, right? So, nonetheless, right, though God's common grace always gives us reason to be grateful for God's kindness, and testifying to God's coming future kingdom is always profoundly meaningful, this isn't ultimately what will make our hearts full. Because the fullness of the Christian joy is when we ultimately see that God's promises are indeed true through experiencing this fellowship of God's reconstituted, reunited family, right? Which is point three, just briefly. God rewards His servants by providing us a special family that has grace in common. Now, I might not look like it, but I actually enjoy going on really long runs and challenging hikes. I climbed Mount Ranjani about a year ago and nearly died, and, but I haven't learned my lesson, and I'm totally down with trying again. My fiance is not here now, but if she was, she'll probably be like, yeah, over my dead body. But anyway, why I'm so into it, even though there is certainly going to be extreme fatigue, potentially serious injury, or perhaps death if I'm really careless, it's because one of the most gratifying feelings for me is getting to the top of that mountain or finishing the end of the run. When I finish, when I set out what I set out to do and exercise a level of effort that I wasn't sure I was capable of. When this happens, I get this frankly addictive feeling of satisfaction and affirmation when I find myself able to surpass what I thought my limits were. Now, I don't know how many of you can relate to this feeling. 
But this is what I imagine Paul's feeling of thankfulness is like when he finally arrives in Rome and meets the brothers there in verse 15. However, not because of his own ability to surpass limits, but rather due to the realization of the truly limitless power and faithfulness of our God. Since we left Malta from verse 11 and 14, Luke basically tells us the final stretch of Paul's marathon to Rome. And it's indeed been a long journey. It's taken him three or four years for him to get there. Three or four years since God has promised to Paul that he will testify to his name in Rome as he was taken into captivity in Jerusalem in chapter 34. And we've all learned how it's been far from smooth sailing. So many near-death experiences, so much pain, so many intimidating and anxious situations, and so much time just waiting with uncertainty. And it would be perfectly human, even for someone with as much faith as Paul, to have the occasional moment of despair and doubt that he was actually going to make it. And, Paul, and while God did give Paul these you know, occasional moments of relief, a break from the labor and pain that he's had more than his fair share of in his ministry, right? These small reminders of God's grace as we've just seen him experience in Malta. But this experience is, although it kept Paul going, it wasn't Paul's destination. It was never the end in itself. Although I'm sure he was grateful. I you know Luke didn't tell us, but I'm sure he enjo- really enjoyed the kindness of the people of Malta what Paul really wanted to do, where he really wanted to be, and what he longed deeply in his heart to see is God's family that has been united by the gospel in Rome. So you can have the pleasure, the honor of proclaiming boldly to them the kingdom of God and teaching to them the Lord Jesus Christ who was among them too. This, friends, is not just some chore to Paul. It wasn't just his job. It was the highest honor, heaven on earth for him. And Paul, friends, risked his life, risked everything, left everything for this, willing to go to hell and back so that he can be with them. And if you've been in CCC for a while, you might know where I'm going with this. Because Paul was only imitating someone else in the Bible who suffered immensely so that he can reunite God's family. Of course, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Apostles' Creed, which you might be familiar with, it describes Jesus' suffering on the cross as descending into hell, bearing all the consequences of our sins, all the pain and suffering that we deserve, the fullness of God's wrath so that our sins may be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God as children of God, having a place with Him in heaven. Paul was only able to be with the Roman church for two years and under house arrest, and, and he can only testify to Jesus. But Jesus' suffering allows us to be with Him face-to-face, freely, forever. And just as how in verse 15, Christians came from all regions surrounding Rome to see Paul, 
God's family will be likewise gathered from all nations, from all the world, to enjoy Him forever in this heavenly kingdom where God will be with us will be, and will suffer no more. Brothers and sisters, God's family is a family that is united because we have grace in common. We're together because we've received, we've enjoyed the same kindness from God. So though in this thoroughly fallen earthly kingdom, there will be experiences of God's common grace that can refresh us and we can enjoy what the world really needs is God's special saving grace. So we must never lose sight of where we're going. Never forget what we're looking forward to. The reunion of God's family of grace. Now, the closest we have to that here on earth right now is your local church, right? Not at TCC exclusively or even especially. It's supposed to be in any fellowship of believers. So uh, as Christians, let's intentionally appreciate that and try to make our communities reflect that reality. However, if you don't think you are part of this blessed family of God, if you suspect that your sins have not been forgiven and you still somehow feel estranged and distant from God, let today's message be an invitation for you. If you know that sin has broken your life and you want to be healed, know that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the grave, Jesus will heal you too and you are already part of this family. So I pray that you give us a chance to treat you as family. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who are we, O Lord, to be called your children? Lord, you sustain us with your grace that is new every morning. Oftentimes, we take for granted the kindness that you've shown to us. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit that we may see and appreciate that, but also allow us through your Holy Spirit to see the brokenness of this world and to be brokenhearted over it that you may be moved to serve it and to proclaim to it the better news, the best news that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given to us. Give us this enthusiasm, Lord, and allow us to unite ourselves and appreciate this family that you've united us to, that we may continue to testify to your glorious coming kingdom until we finally see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.